everybody. Welcome to the Optic Theology Podcast. I'm Andy Schmidt here with Nick Gibson. Today we're doing another uh, testimony podcast. Um, Nick will be giving his testimony on how he became a Christian. It took forever to get him to do this. Bailed on me to go fishing a couple times, or I guess one time. But um, did you catch anything when you went? Uh, I caught one fish. It was very disappointing. But it was really nice. I was out. I have a whole lake to myself. Beautiful. City was all lit up. It was really pretty. Where do you go? I was on Mendota. Oh, nice. Okay. Um, so here's what we're going to be doing. Nick, you're just going to start giving your testimony. Um, basically, how you became a Christian. And then um, kind of like, I guess, how you got into ministry, too. And then kind of how God's worked in your life up until this point in your life. Okay. Um, I might interrupt you to ask a couple of questions. But I'll basically shut up, and you can share and and just go as, as long as you want. So go ahead. Good. Yeah, I mean, they they always tell you ministry to have like a thirty second version of your testimony, a two minute version, of, up to like a couple hours. So let me give you the thirty minute version ish, something like that. Um, mm-hmm. So I was born at a very young age in the state of infancy in upstate New York. Both my parents were agnostics. Uh, my dad is what I would call a negative agnostic. He he presumed God didn't exist, but he wouldn't say he knew. My mom was a positive agnostic. She kind of believed in God, but she didn't really know. Um, when my grandfather was my mom's dad, uh, they lived in Erie, Pennsylvania, which is where they immigrated from Rome, Italy. And um, he had a really big, massive heart attack, and he like died in a park. And um, the ambulance like brought him back to life with like the little shocky pads and everything. Oh, yeah. And he was in, so he he was in the hospital, and my mom went to see him. And my, my grandfather, who was named Nicola, I was named after him, said, um, Lucy, I know you don't believe in God. I know you don't know what to believe, but I have seen his face. God is real. And I know you can't, you can't believe because I tell you that. But I, I want you to put my grandsons in church school. That's it. Just, just enroll them in church school. Is he saying, like, when he died, he saw him? Is that yeah, what he's, that's what he said. Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah. Yeah. So and my mom was an agnostic. And of course, I mean, this is his experience, not hers. Like she couldn't believe on the basis of his experience. Right. Though yeah. he was a man of great character. And so she said, OK, I'll do it. Right. So um, in those days, you could be signed up for religious education in school. And like, on, you know, on Wednesdays at three twenty, you know, at like two o'clock, we would walk over to the Catholic Church next door and do religious mm-hmm. education. And so I did that for a few years. And um you know, it like I learned about, I learned that there was a God. I learned that there was a Jesus. I learned some pretty strange theology about that. But I, but like I was, you know, I was God haunted and I was open to God's existence and I was around people who believed in God. And I think that it helped prime, kind of prime me to believe in God. My mom would go through church spurts where she would go to Catholic church for a little while and then um, stop going and then go again and stop going. And um, sometimes I'd be an altar boy for a little while. Um, and we had we had good priests, but they were we were in a really rural town, so they're all really kind of old. And they're kind of, I hate to say washed up, but they like, they weren't very vigorous about the ministry anymore. You know what I mean? They just kind of they did yeah. the mass and then they, that was it. Yeah. We did have this 70-year-old priest from Canada one time who still played hockey, which was kind of fun. But, really? but just he wasn't, I mean, I never had a priest interested in me at all as a person, you know. Um, but they were all, all treating me fine. I did have one priest, though, that didn't like I asked him if he believed the Nicene Creed. Like I was like, do you believe that stuff happened? Do you believe in like the Holy Spirit and 
the resurrection of Jesus and that Jesus was the Christ and was both God and man and all that. And he was like, no, nah, not really. So that, so I mean, that was, that was pretty disillusioning for me. Yeah. But that wasn't until like sixth or seventh grade. That was, it gets a little ahead of us. So anyway. Was this a school from kindergarten till senior year? Uh, this, this like, no, this was the elementary school in Evans Mills, New oh. York. So it went through sixth grade. Okay. So I was going to religious education like fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. So yeah. about, I think it was in fifth grade that I started liking girls. Like I, you know, I, that was, that was kind of warming up. And the problem was, is that I was a super late bloomer. I mean like very late bloomer. And so I was like a short kid, high pitched voice, scrawny. I mean, I was athletic, but I was just little, you know? Yeah. And so like girls are not attracted to that. In case you didn't know. I so, don't cause I've always been big and masculine and manly. So yeah. Yeah. I probably <laughs> were born with facial hair. So <laughs> Anyhow, so I was one of my my brothers, two years older than me. He's my only sibling, and he had a friend named Brandon, who had been to this camp called Beaver Camp on this lake in the Adirondacks. And he said, "You know what's great about this camp is there's like two girls for every guy. It's so awesome." And I was like, "That sounds amazing." So my brother wasn't that into it, but I went to my parents and said, "Hey, I'd love to go to this camp." Um, meanwhile, in third grade, I made friends with this young man named Dan Bazell, and his dad, Mike Bazell, was like a he was like a blue collar jack of all trades. My dad was a white collar person and teacher, but he really respected people who could work with their hands. And Mike was like, he had his own sugar house. Like they made maple syrup on his, like this farm. They had horses. Like I, when I became friends with this kid, I started like, it was like free to go ride horses. I mean, it was amazing. You know, mm-hmm. we rode dirt bikes, did all that kind of stuff. But um, anyway, Mike's brother, Eric Bazell was the director of this camp. And so Mike gave Eric our names and Eric invited my dad and I on this father son canoe trip. And so my dad was not a believer, but he loved the outdoors. He wasn't against religion. He just didn't believe in it. And so he loved it. You know, canoe trip sounds great. Right. So we went on this father son canoe trip through Beaver camp and there were all basically my dad was the only non-Christian on the trip. We were like the heathens, he and I. And so I played with the other boys. He got to know the other dads. We had a really nice time together. He really respected Eric Bazell. Eric is like an incredibly virtuous and godly and humble man. And my dad really respected him a lot immediately. And I think he thought, you know, I don't believe in religion, but if this guy runs that camp, it can't be a bad place. Right. Right. So, and also there was a, there was this moment where we were supposed to do personal devotions with like father and son together. (laughs) And so my dad was like, why don't you look up the Bible verse and then we'll talk about it. So the Bible verse was the book of Psalms. And the only Bible we had in our house at that time was like one of those little, little green Gideon Bibles in the King James version with a new Testament in the book of Psalms. And so my dad gives me, says like, why don't you look up, you know, Psalm 91 or whatever it was. So I'm looking through this, this book. It's the first time I'd ever opened a Bible in my life. And I'm looking, I look in the table of contents. I'm looking for this book, Psalms, Psalms, Psalms. I look everywhere. I can't find it anywhere. I turn to my dad and I say, dad, I don't, I don't mean, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I, I don't think there's any book in this whole Bible that starts with the letter S. Right. <laughs> and, and when I said that to him, he had this kind of look of disappointment on his face. Like, but it, it, did, it didn't feel like he was sneering at me. I think he realized that I, he didn't realize how ignorant I was about religion because he like had grown oh. up with in this like American Baptist family and like he'd gone to church when he was a kid and like he'd learned the books of the Bible and the idea that his son didn't even know that the book of Psalms started with a P yeah, was like not a category that he would have conceived of, you know? So he was like, oh my gosh, my kid knows nothing about religion and I'm certainly not going to teach him. 
right? And so even though he didn't believe, I think there's part of him that's kind of like, I don't really, I'm not really comfortable with him being this ignorant of religious faith. So anyway, that, that rolled up. And so I asked my parents if I could go to the campus, to the resident camp. Was this and, like a cat, a Catholic type camp or was it like, a, no, it's a, it's actually, a, it was actually a Mennonite camp, but it was, there are Mennonites that believe in Jesus as the son of God and the risen Christ. And yeah. there are Mennonites that believe in Jesus as somebody who was against wars. And is for two like different, completely yeah. opposite. Things. Well, Mennonites historically are pacifists. So the ones that vehemently believe, absolutely believe Jesus is the Son of God, are also usually pacifists. Okay, it's a it's an Anabaptist pacifist denomination. That's what Mennonites are. Mm-hmm. But there are some that have essentially lost the theology of salvation, but still yeah. hold to the liberal pacifism and the social yeah. do gooding, so to speak. But they don't believe in the theology anymore. This group, the Beaver Camp, was a was Mennonite in the jesus tradition and the camp was staffed with mostly independent pentecostals okay like raving like jesus holy spirit speaking in tongues pentecostals um so anyway my parents i was a pretty hyperactive kid my parents were keen to let me go to this camp so they cobbled the money together and sent me i had no idea how expensive summer camps were i wasn't i'm a parent now and i know it it's crazy (laughs) but they sent me to this camp and so basically i went to this camp from my the summer after my fifth grade year all the way through with senior in high school every year. And I basically accepted Jesus like every week I was there. <laughs> um, and about when I was 14, I think is when it took. I don't know what that means. But I remember accepting Jesus a number of times. In my, in, in my, and Eric Bazell actually told my mom. Now, he said, listen, Nikki accepted Christ at camp this week. It's like it's, and, my, and my mom was kind of like, well, of course he did. We're Catholic. <laughs> like he's like, why, why wouldn't Jesus he accept Jesus? Like, hadn't he already accepted? What does it mean to accept Jesus? Like, my mom had no category for this, right? Yeah. So, anyway, so about when I was fourteen, I, I basically picked an argument with the camp pastor for the week because I didn't feel like swimming, and we were on like an all camp camp out, and he just basically took me through what's called the Romans Road, like the you know you go through the Book of Romans and you talk about how salvation works. Yeah. And it, it was probably the clearest it had ever been explained to me. And I was like, I think I get that. And then, um, and then I, it, like, like it is literally the, the evangelical cliche. There was a fireside sermon at which there was an altar call at which they played amazing grace at which they invited you to come forward and pray the sinner's prayer with, and then to go to a special place with people who were ready to counsel you on the decision you would just make. Like, it, I mean, this it's like a boomer's dream. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I did it. Like I was like, yeah, I'll accept Jesus and I'll walk up during amazing grace and go say the sinner's prayer. And like, yeah. so like, I mean, I literally, it was the biggest Christian cliche you could ever imagine. And I, right. I I'll punch anybody who has a problem with it because like it was real. It was real to me. You like, you punch anybody who has a problem with that? Yeah, like when people are like, oh, that's so clear, that's so cliche, that's a boomer. Like, I was just like, who cares? I don't care what you think. Yeah. Like, right. like Jesus was real to me. Like, yeah, Jesus yeah. was declared. Yeah. I believed the gospel. Yeah, and received right. His promise and like His mm-hmm. salvation. Like, I don't care if you think that's stupid. You know, yeah. like you're stupid. Yeah. Like, so yeah, anyway, yeah. <laughs> so it was, and it was really meaningful to me. And I, that was that's yeah. the place where I marked. And the reason why I marked that as the time when it quote took. Is because that's when my conscience was really awake, and I started to, to feel convicted about things, and what started to feel like I ones? should belong to, to God. What do you think the know? earlier ones were? Yeah, you don't know. I, don't. I, don't I know. was just wondering because I, I, I did that like 
20 times too like at all the different like youth group stuff too and then never it, and then when i was like 18 it stuck so it's interesting that that happens right but. right so yeah i don't know why i was oblivious there's some for some reason i couldn't get it but um so then i basically lived torn for three years like i was i, I wanted to be i wanted basically i wanted to be approved of by human beings especially the female variety and I wanted to be great at sports and I wanted to be thought of as popular. And I, I was like, I was a classic climber. Like I wanted to climb that social ladder until I was near the top. And I mean, like I could have been in a Jane Austen novel. I mean, it was like classic, just like, I mean, just, just, just really kind of ruthless an empty self kind of like, just, I'm going to, did you do it? Up. Did you kind climb of, the yeah, ladder? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was reasonably popular. I, at one, like, so and part of the issue is like about the middle of my sophomore year, I hit like I hit puberty hard yeah. and I, I grew like six and a half inches and I put on like 60 pounds of muscle and I looked like a man. I went from looking like a boy to looking like a man. Right. And I was not prepared for the attention that that would create because I was reasonably good looking. And I, I was one of the top two, three players on the soccer team at that point. And um, I was funny and like stuff. And all of a sudden, girls older than me were interested in me, not just no girls. There you and go. it was like very disorienting. Yeah. And so that kind of threw me for a loop through most of my sophomore year and junior year. I was, I was basically a worldling, but I was also going to a youth group. And some of the people that youth group were like, Nick, why do you, why don't you just follow God? I mean, just, you don't have to do this stuff. But honestly, Andy, I just didn't know who I was. Like, I, I just, were you I, like hooking up? You weren't like hooking up with girls or like hanging out with them and stuff. Or, I, like what were you, what, what did that look like? Cause when you say that, cause when I was in high school, when girls started to become interested in me, I started just hooking up with them and hanging out with them all the time. Where yeah. you weren't doing that, were you? Um, so, so if you go back to like my age category, um, so I was so AIDS came out as a thing when I was in like third or fourth grade. Yeah. So when I was at the point of sexual activity, you could die. Like there was oh. literally an STD that would kill you. Right. So and you didn't so, mess around with it. Yeah. yeah, it was a little different because, like, <laughs> there were no antiretrovirals yet. Like, it was the gay cancer that we turned out to be like a sexually transmitted disease that could yeah. kill you. And so, yeah, it was it was different. It was weird. Like, you could have sex and die. Yeah. And th that put a whole gravity to the thing that was just very different. And so, it also, um, that's not what I was really. I wasn't really looking for that. Okay. Like, like I, w I mean, what I what I wanted to know was that I, that I could have her. Not, I didn't have to have her. So I didn't want all the responsibility of like, cause I, cause I knew like I couldn't pressure a girl to have an abortion. Like I knew I couldn't do it. Oh yeah. I, that's and, interesting though, that you, that you wanted, that you wanted to know that you could have her. Cause I felt that exact same way, but I just wanted about it a completely different way. Like that yeah. to me, like wanting to know that you could have somebody to me, was like, you go and you just hook up her. with them. Yeah. yeah. And you take her for five seconds and you leave her. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, so I had an immigrant mother. And her, a big part of her mantra to me was don't ruin your life. Like there was, yeah. there's a strong ethic of like, you can do something in one second and that can wreck the rest of your life. And that kind yeah. of put in me this sort of like idea that my actions have consequences and some of those consequences can't be revoked. Yeah. And there was a sobriety about that where like, if you have sex with a girl, she can get pregnant, she can get pregnant. You can't make her get an abortion, which means right. you become a father. And now you're connected to her for life. For, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, That's I'm crazy. sorry, but like, okay, this is, I'll say this is very crass. What I'm going to say, but there's no way it's that much better than masturbating. 
Like, like I hadn't had sexual intercourse oh. and I hadn't experienced oral sex. And yeah. so like, to me, I was like, look, I can, I can have orgasms on my own. Like, I don't, I don't need to die of AIDS and I don't need right. to make a baby. Like I, or have I, I don't need it. Yeah, being connected to somebody that you don't really love yeah. for the rest of your life, right? Yeah, yeah. So like, <laughs> I I'm not just think like, about that. No. So, but like, I mean, also like the the pill wasn't as advanced as it was now, and like there are other issues yeah. like that, and um, and but but the thing is, like, I saw pregnant girls in my school all the time. Really? Like, yeah, pregnant girls were allowed to come to school, and so like there'd be a girl that like you know she's just you're one of your classmates and you're a sophomore and she's pregnant. That like, happened all the time. Oh yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't like like twenty percent of girls got pregnant, but yeah. like, there was always a pregnant girl in school. Always. That's crazy. It was like one or two, yeah. but like in a school of like almost a thousand kids. But the, right. like you walked down the hall and you saw her every week, yeah. and you're like, "Dang it, April's pregnant. Dang, yeah. she's gonna have a baby." Like, who's the father? Yeah, like, even, I mean, like it was. It was a thing. So, and I felt like that created a certain sobriety because you're like, look, all these ladies running around here, they're all fertile. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like the sex act is supposed to make children. It's actually pretty good at doing it. Like mm-hmm. be careful. Anyway, so. Did you ever have that talk with your parents? So or like when you started girls becoming more interesting and interested in you, did you ever like talk to your mom or dad and they're like, okay, like I'm like horny now. Like I, I no, want to zero. I literally got zero um, instruction from my parents. My okay. dad literally walked up to me one time when he found evidence of masturbation in my bedroom and said, <laughs> and said, did you, do you, do you know how it's done? The sex thing? I was like, yeah. He's like, do you have any questions? It's like, no. He's like, okay. And he walked away. What? <laughs> that's crazy. That's it. that's it. Like, that's all there was. And so I didn't get, I mean, my dad did when he got wind of me using women. He talked to me about that. Like he okay. got word through a youth group parent that I had toyed around with this girl's emotions. And he's like, listen, this is what I heard. I don't know if it's true. You don't have to tell me all about it. Really? But if it's true, this is not how you treat people. Huh. So that was meaningful. And I had, yeah. so, so anyway, what I actually did was, is I went through this basically serial dating phase where I would date a girl for a week or two. I would make out with her. I'd squeeze her in certain places. And then I like, I got to the point where like, basically I could, this could go wherever I want. She was attached to me and she had, she had in that sense given herself to me. Right. So I, that was it. I I was done. Like two, like two weeks, and then you're just yeah. like, uh, yeah. Did so you, did, I didn't even really realize I was doing it, but I was already working on the next girl. So I was making friends with five or six girls, and then one relationship would get intense. Yeah, I'd make out with her. We'd we'd quote like hook up in that sense, but not in the yeah, yeah, yeah sense. Right. And then I'd be like, okay, I've got you know, like in some of these some of these girls, like they were in love with me. Right. Well, and I, I mean, like, did that, no, I'm done. Did that scare you? Like, like that's yeah. what scared me. That's why I'd never, ever dated anybody in high school. I like, I was, I would never date anybody. I'd, I'd hook up, I'd hang out with as many girls as I could, but it, whenever it got to the point where it felt like it was a little bit, they like liked me too much. I would just right. stop talking to them. Right. And which it scared is the crap out which of Which is me. literally exactly what's supposed to happen. 
<laughs> I know. But like, yeah. that's what's supposed to happen. Is people are supposed to grow affection for each other, and they're supposed to bond. Right. Right. But I wasn't interested in bonding. I was interested in affirmation. That's all I cared about. I wanted you sure. to tell me I was worth having. I was wanted. That's all I cared about. Yeah. Because I, as a scrawny kid that didn't hit puberty, I got made fun of and I got bullied and people didn't like me. I didn't know. I didn't think anybody was going to want me and I and no girls did want me. And so when they did, it was like a drug. And I was I was just high on that drug for like a year and a half. Did you get a reputation? Where people like now Nick, Nick is that dude yeah, that does that sort of, but because I wasn't having sex with them, and I wasn't using uh, them to the full extent of how men usually use women, it was kind of they didn't have anything. It was disorienting yeah. because they're like, right. so wait, what you're saying is he you made out with you a few times, and then he lost interest. Well, you just what, see, but here's yeah. the thing. I mean, think about this for a second. How disorienting is that for you as a 16 year old girl? Yeah. That some guy like likes you. You were talking to him in class. He like showed interest, and then he like you went out and did stuff, and he like kissed you, and it seemed really nice. And he seemed kind of tortured about it, and then like, and then he just kind of like didn't follow up. And you would have given him more. Why didn't he want more? Like, what's the what's going on, right? right. So like, I so so when I there was a time where I was like, sort of like yeah, you know, like I because over the course of that time, it's probably about. I, I actually counted with another friend who went through this same kind of phase. And in those days, I think we were still a little proud of it, but we were both like slightly over 50 different women over the course of a year, over the course of a, a little bit. It's, it's almost a girl a week. Like that's, that's, that's really perverse. That's yeah. stupid. I don't, yeah. I don't even know like anybody. I've no, I've never had any friends that's done that. That's yeah. crazy. So, but he, both he and I never had sex with one of them. And that's also far. crazy. That's yeah, like never got that far. It's just, and for some reason, I just was shut it off. And I, I, it might have been the time. It might have been the STDs. It might have been the pregnancy. I'm not really sure. It might have just been the grace of God. And it might have just been that I was a coward. It might have yeah. just been that I thought that I could get a girl, but I couldn't please a woman. And mm. that there was still a profound insecurity in me about that. Because if I would have had sex with a woman and she wouldn't have been pleased by it, I would not have had the attitude, well, I won. Yeah. I would have had the, I would have thought I was a failure. Right. And I didn't want another reason to be a failure. So were you felt, did you feel convicted in the beginning? And then after a while, it just numbed out like, about yeah. like just making out the conviction sort of, but the conviction was the worst at the end. Really? So like I got into my first year of college. So anyway, so I got through my, I got to the, to the end of my junior year right? and I was at this party where something more intimate than usual happened. Mm -hmm. Um, actually with like another person. So it was like me, one of my really good guy friends and another, and a girl. And it was a unbiblical thing that was happening. And I was just, I just felt like, what the heck am I doing? Like you're in high school. Yeah. So this is at the end okay. of my junior year in high school. And okay. you know, we were the, he and this, he and I were both soccer stars on the team. The girl was like the top soccer star on the girl team. We were all mm -hmm. best friends. And, um, and it was just kind of like a, it was something that like, it was, it was a sexual thing that should not have happened. I didn't have sex with anybody, but it, I might as well. It was messed you know, up. It was, it, stupid, was yeah. it was spiritually really messed up. Anyway, and I like I walked out of there and like everybody's drinking and all my friends are doing all this kind of stuff and like and I was kind of like what am I doing? Like I, yeah. I just got I just got heartsick of being torn in two. Yeah. You know, it was like having your feet on two boats that are moving apart. And it's just how how apart. like how dark was that? Because that the last time that I ever hooked up with a girl was two years ago. And I stopped mid hookup and I grabbed my clothes and I left 
and I wanted to drive my car off the highway because I hated myself. So that I never felt more convicted yeah. by anything. In I had my a whole very life. serious. Yeah, I had a very serious experience with that. Like I like I I like walked out, got my car, drove away, and then parked. Yeah, it was like, what? Like what am yeah. I doing? Like what? Who am I? Like what? Like I'm yeah. getting the things I have all the stuff I wanted. This is what I've wanted. Like I'm a I'm a sports star. I am cool. I can get any girl I want. Like I'm gonna go to college. Everything's fine. Right. Like I have a good life. I'm miserable. I am yeah, so I miserable. And I hate this. Right. And um and these and like I'm and and also I was starting to get this feeling that like God was getting ready to kill me. Like if I like if I misused like because I got started to get this sense like he's like. Who do you think they, who do you think these women belong to? Right? Yeah. I had no respect for their fathers. I wasn't a deep enough person to mm-hmm. understand like parents pouring their lives into people and nor understanding wounds. I didn't understand my wounds. I didn't understand theirs. I didn't understand what right. wounds I was perpetrating, but I should have. I could have if I had taken a moment to look, you know? Right. So anyway, um, so from there, I decided to turn around my senior year and be like, you know, what? I'm not I'm not playing these games. I'm going to be a Christian. And so I kind of cleaned it up and I said, I'm going to I'm just going to be a Christian. And so I did that. And a lot of my friends that were leading me the other direction, they were all a year older than me and they all graduated. Mm-hmm. So, no, I was the big senior guy, you know, and, and so I was like, look, I'm not playing games. I'm not going to respond to to like bullying like i'm gonna do what's right in every situation i know how it was pretty messy but i pretty much did that the problem is is that in a school of scumbags that makes you more attractive to girls oh yeah when you start being yeah. nice to people and caring about them i know then yeah. they think <laughs> yeah so true. i was becoming stronger as a man and i was being treating people with a little bit more dignity and i was trying not to use people and like, how hot is that? Right. I mean, like, yeah, so that, I mean, that created its own set of problems, but I right. did a pretty good job of like kind of holding back and, but not very, not very good. And then I went to my freshman year in college. I went to this, this state school and same deal. Like I, I was growing in my faith. I started having devotions every day. Was it a Christian um, school or no, it was a state college. No. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And I was part of the Christian fellowship and I was growing but like I was still like meeting these girls and it was much fewer. Like it was like yeah. it was like one every three months now, but it was still kind of the same story, you know? And um, but I was growing my faith a lot and I was going to conferences and I was reading the Bible and I was like learning my theology. And it was but th- but this place in my life was like really stuck. And I listen, I didn't realize until like literally decades later that it was this wasn't just a sin. It was like rooted in all kinds of like wounds that i didn't understand so i thought of it in terms of like that i had this flaw that i just kept doing and i needed to stop doing it and so the way i decided to stop doing it was to try to get a sense of the gravity of what i was doing morally if i could understand how terrible a perpetrator i was then maybe i could stop doing this Mm -hmm. and so i had a couple experiences where i was like where i was being friends with a girl i knew exactly where this was going I let it go there and I was and I felt increasingly I started having like a sense of terror about it that like at some point God should probably kill me. And I know that sounds weird to like guys who just hook up with chicks and treat them like garbage, but like you are, that's what I was doing. I, I mean, you don't have to undress a woman, and have sex with her to make her feel unwanted. 
to make right. her feel like you, you wanted her, but then you didn't. Like she was enough to grab, but she wasn't enough to keep. To keep I mean, yeah. like that's got to be like with the worst feeling. And that's the worst feeling I could ever have. I think it's for a woman to feel yeah. like, yeah, I was into this guy and he, I was good enough to grab it. Not good enough to keep like, that's gotta be a, like a huge and horrible wound. And I don't know what husbands like are struggling with their wives to this day because of my thoughtlessness and my oh, stu- yeah. perversity. You know what I mean? That's, like that their good. wives bear wounds that I was part of. That's anyway. stressing me out. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so anyway, yeah, I kind of got to this point where I was like, look, this is, this is just, I don't know what to do with this. And I, and I, it was weird because I felt like most of the sins in my life I could overcome and this one I could not. And it was, it was like my, my main darkness in my, the thing. And I, and I didn't realize the reason I couldn't overcome this is because the sin was rooted in a really deep wound rather than just a sin that I was just choosing to do. All the other sins I just chose to do when I came under the Lordship of Jesus, I just stopped doing them. I was like, well, what, Jesus. like, is it, was it a specific wound or like for me, it was, yeah. For me, it is like a bunch of different things from my child. Like, I, like, I don't know. I go to counseling and, you know, and they're like, it's a bunch of different things. Yeah. Was it a specific thing or was it just a bunch of different things from your childhood that kind of ra- wrapped into it? I don't, I still don't think I totally understand it. I think there's a big, just unwanted wound. Like when you grew up the run, like a scrawny kid. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I can't remember my dad ever saying he loved me in my whole life. So, that, I mean, that, like, I know he loved me. Right. I know that I, I know he yeah. loved me and I never really doubted that, but there was yeah. a certain kind of affection that I never really yeah. had. And I was yeah. a really, pro- I was kind of a problem kid. I was a really hyper kid. I, I said impetuous things. And so recently I was doing like a personal treat and I, 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 I wrote down the question, what relationships have I had in my life in which someone enjoyed me and delighted in me? And I didn't have to perform in any way to be loved and enjoyed. And Andy, I could not think of a single name to write down in, that was, in your that entire a, life. No, that was a long-term substantive relationship. Like, so, like, so you can't count your wife, or are you going to count your wife in that? And you're like family. Yeah, I could, but and, and I think I think I could count my wife in that. But like, I, as as I, like, there are some. I've had a couple relationships in my life where it seemed like it was easy to take pleasure in me. But listen, even when you're married, like when Alexi and I were dating and when we were early married, mm-hmm. I mean, the main time in my life where I would say my wife really delighted in me was when we were dating. And the reason mm-hmm. is not that she changed. The reason is we didn't have any responsibilities. Yeah. But it turns out when you may get married and you have all these responsibilities and people don't always pull their weight like they should, it can be really hard to delight in your spouse because your spouse is working hard or they're annoyed at you. And yeah. it's hard to like pull back from all of that and relax right. and delight in somebody. And you know, my wife has all her own issues, right? Like Alexi has a hugely overgrown sense of responsibility that is rooted in all her own issues that she hasn't mm-hmm. even sorted out yet. And we're both in our forties, you know? Right. And so do you think I'm, that that was like that? Gr- and maybe you talk about this a little bit later, but do you think that that like was just maximized when you became a pastor? Because I feel like, especially at high point people like with you as a pastor, cause you're smart like that makes sense. Like people don't find like joy or whatever you said, they don't like find joy or whatever in, in a pastor. They, they just want to see what they can get out of the pastor. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. That, I mean, like, does that, yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, it, it makes sense for sure. I mean, um, I think that that is, a, I think that's a stress. That I th- so um, Jay Stringer's book Unwanted, like is kind of about the yeah, fact I that, have like, it. all kinds of different wounds 
will communicate the idea that like you're not good enough and yeah. nobody wants you. So you're not satisfactory in your ability. You're not competent, but also in terms of desire, nobody wants you. Is that, so, a, is that, that's a bad thing. Okay. The, the yeah. desire thing is a bad thing, but what about that? You're not good enough. This is what I struggle with in my head. It's like, I am not good. That's a fact. Like I am not good enough. Somebody who's not like, I deserve to go to hell and I deserve to burn forever. Like it, I'm not good enough. And so yeah. there's a big movement in modern culture of like, you're good enough. You're worthy. You're beautiful. You're great. And it's like, that just turns into pride. So where do you, how do you balance that out? I, that's what's confusing to me. I don't get that. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's the conundrum that Christian faith attempts to solve, right? It's the fact that you aren't worthy of love in, in re reference to your righteousness. Mm -hmm. And as an object of meaning, someone who bears the image of God, you are worthy of love. You should be loved. Yeah. Yeah. And so so it's this, it's like this really profound conundrum, right? And so we need to be justified, right? So like what we need yeah. is we need to be morally rehabilitated so that we can be our moral standing can equate to our standing of value bearing the image of God so that we can be loved right by yeah. God in his perfect love. And so without atonement, that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. There's no way to make that work. And that's why the Christian faith is necessary for all people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, um, so I didn't understand that wound. So, but what happened was is in my sophomore year of college, I met Alexi, who is my wife. And we had, she came to faith really quickly, like in two weeks of coming to college. And we had just a very um, tumultuous and exciting and passionate relationship for three and a half years while we were in college. And, um, and we were in love. We got married. And in many ways, um, Alexi has been the, um, the functional scaffolding for my wounds for decades. So like she, she has been the one cause like when you're married, you have somebody to turn to, to ask, am I wanted? And when oh. you're, and when your spouse receives you regularly in that way, like either affirmationally or sexually or personally, or in all kinds of different ways, or just stays with you, like she's signaling to you or ha and has children with you. Right. She's signaling to you that you're wanted. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, so throughout my, my 20 years with Lexi, um, she has been a person who's been present to say you're wanted, right? Yeah. I wasn't healed. I just had help. Right. You know, how was the beginning of the, of your guys's marriage? Cause yeah. I mean, like how, how cause you dated for three years, yeah. which you say like to not do like, right. that's a, like a terrible idea. And then you yeah. did that and then you got married that what was there like issues or like, how did that play out too? And yeah. I don't even know how you did that. Three years dating for three years and without like having sex. That's crazy. That's freaking, I don't know. Yeah, it was really, it was crazy. It was very, 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 very hard. Um, And it, part of the deal was we broke up like 20 times. <laughs> and, it, and, almost, and of those 20 times we broke up, one or two was for reasons other than we just couldn't control ourselves. Things really? were just like rolling. And we just were like, look, we just need to take a break. But the, But usually in the past when I would do that with a girl, I wouldn't ever want to get back together with her. Like, yeah. but with Alexi, there was something different. Huh. Like I, I wanted her, I wanted more. I wanted her yeah. to be my partner, like my, my friend, my companion, my, the person who's going to be with me. Right. And yeah. to me, that signaled that she was the right one to be my wife. Like that. Cause I, I, I wanted her Yeah. in, in every sense. So, 
so we did. We we got through. Um, we got married, and um, and I knew by that point that I wanted to do ministry. And I thought that when I got married, all the sexual stuff would get solved because I wouldn't be bouncing from woman to woman. When I was married, I'd be married, and I wouldn't have issues yeah. related to sexual longing because I'd be married, and so I'd be married. And yeah. so when we got married, I kind of put all that behind me because at that point I had overcome. Um, I never had a porn habit. I had overcome masturbation and I was married to a woman who I loved. And so I was like, I've, I've won. I won. You solved sexual sin. You right. solved it. Yeah. Right. And so I thought all I have to do now is know that you can fall into sexual sin and temptation, even when you're married. And so I yeah. need to be vigilant about this and staying intimate in my relationship with my wife. Like and by intimate, that mean, I, I don't just mean sex. I mean like staying close to her personally. Yeah. And then also knowing what kind of boundaries I need to have in my relationships with women. But, but that probably anyway. was hard because you you had like fifty girls. You were a sp- serial dater, like you said. That's mm-hmm. that. I mean, I'm scared for myself. Like honestly, like I'm scared for myself because of the stuff, the girls, the things that I did when I, you know. So I don't like. How did you deal with that? How, how did that happen? I mean, part of the thing that I didn't, I didn't really understand very well is the result of that kind of serial dating or behavior with really relationship to women is, in every case, you're using you're using the woman as an object rather than the subject. Right. And, yeah. and the most fundamental thing about her is that she's a subject. She's a being. Right. Mm-hmm. And the way sex is supposed to work or intimacy is supposed to work is it's supposed to be a subject subject interaction, not yeah. a subject object interaction. Yeah. You're not having sex with a thing. You're having sex with a person. Right. Which is why porn is so bad. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. And so one of the things I realized is that that is the way I saw women. Women. Yeah. Weren't aren't subjects. They're, they just aren't subjects. They're so occupied. even when you got married, you still had some of that in you? Yeah. Oh, to this day. To this yeah. day. The, when I see a new woman, she's an object first. I have to then enter into a relationship. I have to, like, I have to go through a cognitive process of like, this is a person, not a body. Is that is – that, so this is the question though. Is that like – is you going through that in your mind? First she's an object and then kind of – turning her into a subject in your mind is that like counter biological because i feel like for men i don't know any man that looks at a woman and is like oh that's like somebody i want to like get to like i always look at a woman like she's either hot or she's not or like she's attractive or like i'm looking at like how she is first and like how she looks that's what i, I don't know what that's yeah stuff yeah is. i mean no i've talked to psychologists who've said that that's just the case with males at least that they're like like every man when he sees every woman every woman gets a thumbs up or a thumbs down in his mind like yeah. <laughs> yeah. she's a yes or she's a no. Right. I think that that's probably true. And so one of the things I've struggled with is I don't know what it would look like to just be masculine and not have these wounds. Yeah. I don't know what it'd be like to be that man. I don't know if I'd be just huh. the same as I am now or if I'd be t- very different. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what every man feels or what just men like me feel. And so, and also the wound, some of those wounds of like being unwanted and fighting for attention, that kind of thing are shared by many men. I would argue maybe the majority. Yeah. And so there, some of the, some wounds are so common that we share so much in the human condition. We don't really know what's nature and what's condition. Yeah. That's interesting. So I don't really know, but what I do know is, is that women are in fact subjects, not objects. Yeah. And that that's how they're to be seen. That's how God sees Mm -hmm. them. That's how I'm meant to see them. And that's how I'm meant to relate to them. And so, um, and, th- but, and then it, it was, it wasn't so much later that I began to realize that 
that flaw in me was not just a flaw to be fixed. That flaw was predicated on a wound that needed to be healed. Yeah. And it's only in the last few years that I've actually even realized that. For my whole life, I've thought of that womanizing as a flaw, as a sin, which it is. It's a flaw and a sin. Yeah. But I didn't realize that it was predicated on a wound. And if I really wanted to, like, one of the things that nobody, no pastor ever said to me was, okay, Nick, you have this thing. That's your thing, right? I was like, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, let me ask you this. Is there anything else, any other sin that's like this for you? No. For, yeah. No. All right. Is it, is it that you don't know it's wrong? No, I know it's wrong. Is it that you don't right. know God's teaching about sexuality? No, I know God's teaching. Is it that you're an undisciplined person? If I looked at the other areas in your life, would I find a lack of discipline? No, I'm a super disciplined athlete. I'm a disciplined student. I'm a disciplined scholar. I'm a disciplined worker. I'm a disciplined everything. Well, so it's not discipline. Well, probably not. I mean, it's probably not discipline or self-control. Are you able to control yourself when you want to? Yeah. And this is the only thing that's not like that. Yes. Well, then it's a wound. Like it's like it's deductive. Like if you, if you go through like all the things that would cause a flaw and it's none of those other things, mm -hmm. it's almost always predicated on a wound. And if you want to fix the flaw, you'd better deal with the wound. It's interesting because I think a lot of churches talk about putting like they, they act like sexual sin is like, yeah, putting a bandaid over a gushing wound. Mm -hmm. Like like here, let's just try to fix this problem, which is why. Like FNF, Forgiven and Free was so important when Vince started it. For me, it was a shout out to Forgiven and Free. I, if, you're, if there's guys listening to this, I think that they should be in Forgiven and Free. But if they're struggling with sexual sin. But it was important because Vince was always trying to get to like, he was always asking these questions to me that would kind of piss me off. But he would try to get to like the root of like, hey, like, why do I, why am I continuing to do this? Like, right, I was a disciplined athlete. I was like, I mean, I wasn't dis as disciplined as you were because I didn't care about school and stuff. But there were certain things I was very disciplined in. I just can't couldn't figure out why I couldn't stop watching porn or stop hooking up with girls. And it was a, it was a wound. And I think mo most churches try to just, here's a Band-Aid. Like, and that's just, Band-Aids don't last. So it's interesting that you talk about the, a wound being the issue. Yeah, and it, it makes sense that if you live in a world that is under the curse, everybody's going to be a victim and a perpetrator. Everybody's going to be harmed in harming others. It's like, that's the thing that's so crazy about sin and why one of the most fundamental ethics of the Christian life is forgiveness. If you live in a world where everybody's a perpetrator, everybody's a victim, everybody's ruining everybody else. Yeah. The only way to even start a process of getting towards something good is if forgiveness is at the heart of everything. Because mm -hmm. you have to forgive yourself. You got to forgive others. You got to like, you got to forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive and then forgive again. Because this this world is shot through with brokenness, right? Mm -hmm. So, in and I begin to also realize that the Bible said a lot about God. God is a healer. Um, but but Andy, for most of my life, even in trying to follow Jesus, I've been trying to do what I think Jesus wants from me. And so, a lot of my life was spent de developing really strong coping mechanisms. Hmm. Yeah. So, a lot of like like my argumentativeness and a lot of the stuff that people think of as part of my strength is all coping mechanism. I'm a really highly sensitive person. And when I acted like a sensitive young boy, everybody attacked me like I was prey. Interesting. And so I yeah. was like, all right, fine. The, you need me to look at like a fighter? I'll be a fighter. Yeah. Yeah. You got to become like a kind of a badass. Wait, yeah. 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 I, 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 I feel that. Yeah. <laughs> I feel that a lot. How do you even combat that? Like, cause there is like, that I totally feel that man. Like I used to be way softer, and then and then as time went on, and people just beat you down and beat you down and beat you down. You're like, I can't get beat up anymore. I start beating on other people, and then right. you develop this like alter persona that's not even you, but it's like I don't know. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah because freaky. once you start fighting the bullies, 
and you're like, this fighting thing works, and you like develop that, then like only using it on the people that you need to use it on that becomes difficult because right yeah. now you've you've actually developed a source of power. I have right? it. Yeah. Yeah, I know one psychologist who says the nature of meekness is the fact that you have a sword. You can cut somebody's head off, but you know when to keep your sword in the sheath. Well, it's also like Jordan Peterson talks about the hierarchy and like, I don't know any. I mean, there's a lot of men that like have like a lust for getting to the top of a high, any hierarchy. Like I like when you get into a room full of like men, the guys are just like. <laughs> everybody wants to be the big dog in the room mm-hmm. and it's like that's that's also like a driving force too and I, so yeah yeah that's really natural and especially like in the younger years because you're trying to win you're trying to get the spoils yeah. you're trying to get the girl you're trying to right. and um and and competition is one way to pursue that right um, in yeah. christian faith you're supposed to pursue it through virtue you're supposed to pursue virtue and um people are supposed to be valued by the, how Christ-like they are, which are the virtues like the the fruits of the spirit, which aren't, which isn't like being like power and being the top dog. It's like kindness and self-control and love, and those like things sound soft, but right. they're like necessary. So yeah, and, and in some ways they're alternate expressions of power too, though. Like in some ways they're like humility isn't me isn't weakness. It's a different kind of cultivation of power. Humility is powerful, yeah. but right. like it's and 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 like having developed coping mechanisms of being a fighter developing the character of identity like where i know who i am and that's where everything's coming out of that's that's much harder hmm. than just being a fighter yeah. you know yeah. anybody can anybody can spray a verbal machine gun but like knowing <laughs> who you are seeing the other person as a person like seeing them as another human being and treating them with dignity while yeah. you are fighting for what you think you should Right. Like that kind of balance is really difficult. Yeah, it's yeah. harder to not not shoot the the verbal machine gun than to shoot it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I said the other I said the other day. I think in a sermon, I was like, "There's a huge difference between getting in a fight and trying to like beat the crap out of your opponent, mm-hmm. and getting in a fight where you're trying not to hurt your opponent." Yeah. Like as a Dude, as I, I've, like I I've gotten so. in a fight with one of my children, like a true fight. Like one of my kids fought me, and I was trying not to hurt this child. Right. But I had to win the fight physically. It was important. Did you ever see the movie Warrior? I don't think so. About the MMA fighter who they're brothers and they're in this big tournament and they get to the championship against each other and they have like an alcoholic dad and this crazy background. You got to watch that movie. I think I think you'd love it. It's like the championship is two brothers pitted against each other who like one of them hates the other one and the other one like still loves him. And it's this big. I'm not going to reveal the ending. People got to watch it. But it yeah. made me think exactly of what you were saying. You got to call it Warrior. That. Warrior. It is amazing. It's one of the best movies I've ever seen in my life. Cool. Yeah. yeah so anyway, um, so so in terms of testimony, like, so I kind of got through that time in college, and but I was I was like I was getting a little bit better on some of these issues in, related to that flaw, and I was growing in godliness in lots of other ways, and I was reading the Bible, and God was doing amazing things. Like, one thing that still strikes me is that God was using me even when I had this flaw, and it, it, it in some ways it was torture because I led people to Christ, I discipled people. And yet I had this like underbelly, this sick underbelly. And I felt an enormous amount of shame about it. Um, but I just felt it was like it was deserved shame. Um, and I thought that, it, but I like, but yet God was, God was using me. God was doing stuff in my life. And I didn't, I had no idea why I was doing it. I just knew I could, I, did, I couldn't like really, really, really put an end to it. I didn't know why. I think sometimes God lets some of those flaws persist 
because he really wants to heal the wound. And if he like gives you the grace to overcome the thing, the flaw, you'll never heal the wound. And so um, there's this, there's this passage passage one of Peter Kreese books where he says, um, it may be that God will let you fall continually into lust because he wants to cure your deeper sin of pride and the humiliation of your constant failure and lust might lead you to be cured of the sin of pride first. And then you might grow in God enough that he would cure you also of lust. And (laughs) I think that even more than that, that sometimes God doesn't cure the sin because he wants to heal the wound, not another sin. Yeah. Because I think God, yeah. Does God want you to stop sinning? Absolutely. Absolutely. But if he, if he heals your sin in one way and and the wound isn't healed, you're just going to find another way to sin. That wound is going to come out in another way. Right. Sometimes two or three ways and sometimes worse ways. And so I think sometimes God works in such a way as to not deliver you so yeah. that you will deliver yourself up to him for healing. It feels like, yeah, that's, that's, that's like cool because it feels like there's uh like, like, yeah, it says like you shouldn't sin, but it feels like scripture is more about like you to turn to become like Christ is not that you just stop sinning. It's that you like, you have to be you like everything inside of you changes. And yeah. So sorry, I got you talking about wounds and sexual sin, and all that kind of stuff. I know, that yeah. actually was a really big. That's always been a big part of my life, much bigger than I would right. ever like to admit. And yeah. some people look at me like I'm a sexual success because I never had a porn <laughs> habit. I've only had sex with one woman in my life. Um, I've been faithful to my yeah. wife throughout our marriage. I've never had an affair, and right. yet, and yet, I was a serial dater. I hurt so many women, and I've, you know, like, it, yeah, I mean. God would be like, oh yeah, he he killed it. I mean, he'd be like, yeah, I love him. <laughs> like, but yeah, you know, I I've been a success on paper, but right, a huge failure in reality. Yeah, and um, and so like every person, I'm dependent on the grace of God and the forgiveness of others. Mm-hmm. You know, so anyway, um, but but even in the midst of all that, I went to, I went to seminary uh, at Trinity, got an incredibly great degree, and was treated really well. I was super depressed some of the time we were there. Alexi and I had some really significant marriage issues early on that we we sorted out most of them, but a lot of them are rooted in wounds that we still haven't worked out 20 years later. But we've always, I mean, there was a while where I pretty much hated her and she pretty much hated me, but we found a way to reconnect and we've loved each other our whole marriage. And I love her just really dearly to this day. And, yeah. Um, I, I feel so su- I don't, I'm not one of those men that wishes I could have married somebody else. It's like, Oh, I made a mistake. I've never felt right. that way. I always felt like yeah. I got the one. Yeah. And there were, I mean, I've told people before, I don't, I don't really believe in the one, like there's probably five or six women that I was romantically attached to. Yeah. That I could have easily married a bit of very happy man. Yeah. Um, but I don't work. I mean, I'm glad that Lexi was my one and is right. my one, you know? And I think I'm sure it's the same for her. She could have found some other guy that she could have married and been perfectly happy with. You know, yeah. Um, and she might have found somebody better suited to her. Like, I, I right. don't pretend like I'm the best person for her. I just yeah. am gonna love her. You know. So, um, so anyway, I went to seminary, and I wanted to be an apologist. My goal was to, because I was from a secular university, I had like fought for the faith there. I had listened to Ravi Zacharias tapes and Bill Craig tapes, literally cassette tapes. That's how old I am. And then I was like, I was like, I am gonna go get a PhD. And I'm going to either become a professor at a big university and be a Christian, an open Christian, or I'm going to become an apologist and like go to different universities and argue for the Christian faith as a as an itinerant living. 
And when I went to seminary, one, I realized that there were a lot of people my age doing that, that I was not the only one, but there were lots of people training to do that kind of work. And secondly, I had always, but didn't hated you feel people. like you were smarter than them? No, not really. really. I mean, yeah, of course I did, but not really. No, when I went to seminary, I went from being on the president's list at my university to not quite making a three Oh my first semester or like, mm-hmm. yeah, I, no, I think I made a three. It was like a three Oh three or something like that. And like, I'd been used yeah. to getting three nines, yeah. you know? And so I felt, st- I kind of felt stupid and I felt like the black sheep because most of the people at seminary were sent by pastors that were known and like had a reputation coming in and they had good recommendations. I was this kid from nowhere. Mm-hmm. And I'd always hated going to church. Like I'd gone to church and I had one church I'd gone to that I liked, but most of my church experience was pretty bad. And my college church experience was pretty bad. And so I was, I was like, I, the last thing I want to be is a pastor. I mean, I cannot think of a more unsexy, boring profession than that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And so when I got to seminary, I learned a theology of the church in the Bible. Like I was forced to study what the Bible says about the church and what she right. is and wh- how she matters and what a pastor is and what it means to be an elder and what it means to care for Jesus flock and all that. And I just realized that my priorities were all screwed up, that I was, I was making decisions from my experience rather than from the word of God and what he said he cares about. Hmm. And so this pastor, this uh, pastor professor named Greg Scharf is the one who really changed my attitude about the church and that, becoming that scholar pastor in the church um, in a place that would care about that kind of thing might be a better calling for me. Yeah. And so I, and you said you listened to a sermon one time when you were young and you're like, you said that you, you just thought you could give a better per- yeah. sermon right then and there too. Yeah. I was like a sophomore junior. I want to say I was still 19 years old. So I've been a sophomore in college, but we got a new pastor at this church and he's a, he's a fine, fine guy. But I don't think he prepared much for his sermons, and they all sounded the same. And he was just repeating the same cliches over and over again. He didn't do any analysis of the text of scripture or like exposit it. He just kept saying, "We need revival. You need to lead people to Jesus. We need to have faith." It just he would just say the same like things again and again, expecting it to do something for us. Yeah, it just didn't do anything for me. I was just like, "This is dumb. You didn't even prepare for this." And so I got I was angry because I was like, "Church shouldn't suck." Mm-hmm. why should church suck like do, yeah. you, you need to do one talk a week like come on <laughs> you know and so but here's the thing this guy was like a blue collar worker i think he was in a building profession he went to church got saved felt called somebody handed him a bible he started yeah. preaching and he was better than the other people so they promoted him yeah <laughs> but nobody ever trained him he, he didn't go to seminary he didn't he didn't get he didn't get to take three years of his life off to learn how to do this profession. Like he didn't do it. He's just, he was just working from the gut, man. And for that, I probably should have given him some grace. The problem is he was pastoring in a college town and he was an ignoramus. And so it was hard to lead college students to Jesus. And that was tough. You know? Yeah. I I have a hard time with, with giving those people grace. Like I just, I, I have a really hard time with that. Like if that's, if you're choosing to do that, like in scripture, it says all the time, like, you're taking that responsibility on and there's people's lives that can be destroyed or you can, can be grown into godly people. Like, I don't know. I, I just, yeah, I agree sort of, but there's no end to that logic. Annie. I mean, like, I mean, I am so inadequate for the task that I've been given at high point. I mean, I could, I could, I could go on for hours 
of my inadequacies to what what Madison needs from me and what I can't give it and what high point needs from me and that I can't give it my weaknesses and my inabilities and my like thoughtlessness. And like, I mean, I I could go on and on and on. And I just, I have to believe in the grace of God that like, I'm going to have, I'm going to, all I can be is a faithful steward. I got to just do my best and trust that God does the heavy lifting in this work. How do you do, how do you like, how do you become I, like, this is a weird question, but how do you then like become like the perfect pastor? You can't become a perfect pastor, but like, that's something that people like often hear is like a lot of pastors are like, yeah, I can't, I'm not always going to be the guy who who's like does everything right. And that's like, fine. Yeah. Everybody knows that no, no pastor is perfect, but like, I don't know. I think that God has called me into ministry and like, maybe one day I'll be a pastor. And I, that's what scares me the most is that I go into, being a pastor and I don't do an excellent job at it because I, I don't know. I, you know, do you ever feel like you're just not doing an excellent job at it? Yeah, of course. Every day, like today, like literally today, like every day. I mean, I, every, I mean like it's probably one out of 20 days where I come home to Lexi and she's like, how was work? And I go, I killed it. It was great. <laughs> yeah. Like God was with me. I did all this stuff. It was great. In yeah. most days it's like, I don't know what I did. I talked to people all day. How is that a job? Like, you know, or I try to study and I'm distracted and like, I get frustrated or depressed and like, I'm trying to do all these things and all right, you know, I tell people the right thing and they just won't do it. And like, I can't, you can't, and you can't conjure faith success. You can't like conjure regeneration. Like God has to do it. And so it's, it's tough. It's really tough. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I mean, and, and the thing is God doesn't want you to work yourself to death, even in his ministry. Mm-hmm. He wants you to rest and he, and like, but like, like what's good enough for God? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And if you think in that way, you'll end up destroying your whole family and your marriage and everything. Your kids will, you'll just wreck your kids. They'll hate God. They'll hate the church. Mm-hmm. Like, you gotta just be like, I worked now I'm going home. And, oh. and you leave God's work behind. Like it's, it's weird. It's a very weird thing. Well, it and feels yet, like you leave God's work behind to go do God's work, like your, right. for your family or whatever, to raise your kids or to be a good husband and father. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And that, like that, that whole thing is, but there's all this urgency. Like, you know, do you go home and read to your daughter before bedtime? Or do you go see the person who just went back into the hospital because they've got another infection because of their cancer and they might die this time? Like to get in your car and drive home and read to your daughter feels immoral immoral yeah it feels wrong yeah. and yet sometimes that's what you gotta do huh it, yeah it's a very strange calling because if you like just worked yeah. at the office you're like look it's just time to go home like i i can't sell another widget i can't i make i, I don't need to do another tps report it's time for me to go home yeah. god's work is never done by definition right and mm-hmm. so is your work ever done right and the answer is yes it is. You're a human being. Yeah. You know, but it like it's hard. It's hard to not have a beside complex. It's hard to not see your and, and like it's hard to see your inadequacies and realize that they matter, but they don't matter. Like my inadequacies matter. They everybody is worse off because of them. Uh-huh. And yet they don't matter. God has given me this stewardship and I must prove faithful. That's all. Yeah. I was like he'll make up for that in, in some other way, shape or form. With for your for the crappy parts about you, he'll make up for it with something else. I hope so. 
I mean, I, or maybe I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, all, I, all I know is that I, I exist in his gracious care, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Like I yeah. cling to the cross of Christ himself in my ministry. Like my, like yeah. the only thing that keeps me from being damned in my ministry in service to God is Christ crucified. Yeah. That's it. And, right. but because Christ was crucified for me and I now live by the law of the spirit, I got to do this the best I can yeah. knowing that God is, God is with me. He's not against right. me. He's with me. His, the look on his face is not utter disappointment. It's he's cheering me on. I, I think he's for me, you know? Yeah. He gave his Christ for me. He gave his one and only son for me. He's with me, you know? Yeah. And I, I want to be with him and I just got to do the best I can. That's encouraging to hear. And it's, it's hard for me to, to hear sometimes when people say that God is with me because I, I view him like, you know, as disappointed a lot. So it's like, yeah. To think about that in that sense of like, I never even thought about that till now, which is pretty pathetic, but just like that God is with me. He's like for me. He's not just like, ah, and he's screwed up again today. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Okay. So let's, I'll bring this back around to sex and yeah. then we can find a way to end it. So I was talking to somebody today about, he was talking about uh, yesterday. He was talking about somebody who had had a bunch of regrettable sexual experiences and, and, the, and the person said, um, how do I help that person? like turn to Jesus. And I said, one of the things you need to realize is that the reason this person is turning those sexual experiences is, is because of a wound. Like we went through this. I was like, there's this wound inside of this person. And it, the wound is not deliberative. It's not in your cognitive mind. It's in your spirit. Like it's in your, like your core, it's Mm -hmm. in your like visceral place. And sexuality connects directly with that place. Mm -hmm. Sex is the act of visceral acceptance to demonstrate that you're wanted. If I say to you, God loves you, he wants you, like you're his. Yeah. In Christ, you belong to him. That doesn't go into your, the core of your soul. It goes into your mind. You hear it as a proposition, as like a truth that's out there. And so without something else happening, right, I'm saying something that's going into your cognitive mind, and it doesn't get to your core. It doesn't affect where your wound actually lives, right? But but sin does because sin is visceral, right? It's bodily. It's weak in the sense that it's just bodily and material, but like it's it's it connects with your core because your core speaks the language of the body. It yeah. speaks the language of sensuality, right? And so so striking out into sexual sin connects with your core wound in, in an immediate kind of way. Mm-hmm. And one of the struggles with ministry is. And all of life is to take the spiritual truths of God and get them into the core of your being. So what was your answer for, for that person? Like, that was kind of your answer. Like, like in my testimony, I talked about when Vince started to show me that he loved me, I intellectually knew that he loved me. Like you were just saying, how to, then, then he started to show me that he loved me. And then I think that's what became like kind of maybe what got at the wound a little bit, but like, what was your answer? Well, I said, I said, the reason I told him the person that was just, you need to understand that dynamic. But then what in dealing with that person, I said, what the, what you need to do is because in this case, the person claimed to be a Christian felt bad about engaging in those sexual experiences, that behavior. And like, felt like God didn't want that. Right. And I said, okay, so that person believes they have a flaw. I said, the most important thing to do that person is you have to trace the flaw back to the wound. Hmm. Because when God, because if the person is relating to God on the basis of the flaw, 
then God is their judge. Yeah. And they're going to feel guilty and full of shame, right? And even if you say, but Jesus forgives you, right? There's a, a, a sense in which that person still feels a sense of doom because they feel like they're going to do it again. Because mm-hmm. they can't tell you why, but they know that they're going to do it again. They, they can't say it's because I have a wound. But they'll be like, I, it's a flaw. I'm going to do it again, right? And so God is going to be increasingly disappointed with me. And, and nobody believes that God will forgive you 70 times 7, right? Like nobody really thinks that. They think that every time you have to forgive somebody, you become increasingly disappointed with them. And you, you are more frustrated that you have to deal with this person. Yeah. Because that's how every human feels. Right. I said, if you can get that person to trace the flaw back to the wound, then they can begin to see God as the one who wants to be their healer. And that's a fundamentally different kind of relationship. Yeah. If I have a wound that God wants to heal, he's like a, he's like the, a physician to me. He's trying to, he's trying to heal me, help me as opposed to one who is judging my flaw and telling me that I'm wrong. Even though I am like, wrong. Yeah. It feels like you're less of a, well, you're less of a project. Like it feels like he doesn't want to fix you. He wants to heal you. Like those two things sound differently. Like you're less of a right. project. Like, oh, I gotta, I gotta work on Nick again today. Like, Right. More of like, I, I want to heal Nick, like, so he can become a, a new man. Right. And he's not going to discipline you from the sin. When he heals you, you won't need the sin anymore. Yeah. Right. I think it's Dan Elder who says, like, addictions end when the reason you need the addiction is no longer there. Mm-hmm. Right. And sin is a kind of addictional slavery. Right. But that sin, that addictional slavery will continue so long as that wound isn't healed. And that's one of the reasons why part of salvation is healing. God wants to yeah. heal you. And I, I don't mean that in like a psychological mumbo jumbo sense or in a like, if you just ask the Holy Spirit, he'll just magically heal you. I mean that yeah. in like a process oriented, the development of character, the change over time as you walk with God kind of healing. Right. Yeah. I, I have, I have one, I have one more, well, kind of like one more quick question that has to do with your testimony i mean you came into high point in like 2010 right mm-hmm. uh yeah. so i did a little bit of research i did a little bit of research I, I was i was reading up on the internet and you came into high point when it was kind of at a crappy place i mean i left my family left high point in 2006 i think that's when they had a huge church split there was a bunch of like interim pastors and a bunch of crap that happened and so you came into high point and i think it, it said in the article that i read there's about 300 people coming weekly not not that good. Just big building, you got to pay for it. You've been yeah. here for ten years. So like, how did that affect your life coming into High Point? Because that was the, you said you say this that High Point was the only church that gave you an offer to become a pastor. So how did becoming a pastor at High Point affect your life? And and then also after you answer that question, what's your like goal and vision for High Point and for the city of Madison? Yeah. So in, in the I've I've um, only ever taken two pastor jobs other than the ones I had in seminary while I was in school. In mm-hmm. both cases, I had sent out tons of resumes. I had done a lot of work to try to find a position. And there was one church in America that I could find that wanted to hire me, right? So one was Lynn Haven Methodist in Florida. That was right when I came out of seminary with no experience. And that was a great experience. And that church went from about 450 to about 1,000 when, when I was there. But I wasn't the senior pastor. I served under a guy named Doug Pennington. who's a great, great guy. Was, um, was, was a great boss, a great guy to minister. We were, he and I are very, very different. But like, I have tons of respect for him, and um, he never tried to make me like himself, and he gave me room to hang myself, which is what I, I asked for. Mm-hmm. Um, and, he, and he always stood by me when people attacked me, and I stood by him. Um, and so then when it was time for me to leave there because it was time for me to do the senior pastor thing, and he was ready to have a new season too, um, I, uh, I um, went – I yeah, so I like I, – I, I looked for a while. Like I, I probably looked for 
I don't know, nine months. So I was the preaching pastor at a church that had doubled in size from like 400 people to like eight, 875, like 900. I thought I would be in demand. I thought people would want me. Like, I, I mean, I thought, I mean, I thought surely churches of like 200 would want me as their pastor. Nope. Easily. Yeah. Like easily. That would yeah. <laughs> like I was killing it. I was supervising seven staff. Our church doubled in size. I had written a small book for a fall campaign. Like I, everything was up and to the right. Like I was like an unmitigated success. Uh-huh. Nope. Nobody cared. Nobody cared. Nobody in my denomination cared. Nobody outside cared. Um, and so what ended up happening was, um, I ended up getting called to high point through kind of a fluke, which I, if I tell the story, it'd be like 15 minutes and that's not what you asked me. Um, so I, yeah, so I got to high point, um, the attendance for the, like the month before was like 275 in the worship services as adults. And so my first Sunday, it like bumped up to 325 because everybody wants to see the new senior pastor. Yeah. Um, but that put us in the black my first Sunday. We'd been in the red. My first Sunday, we were in the black financially. And there were more people there. And I just started preaching. I was just like, look, I'm just going to pastor. So I just preached expositional sermons. I did the best I could. The one thing I did my first month is I went to like 14 small groups in people's houses where I asked everybody in the church to go to one of them. And I just said, what does High Point mean to you? What do you hope she'll become? What are your dreams for this church? What was your favorite thing about its past? Stuff like that. And I wrote down yeah. pages and pages and pages of notes. I summarized them into seven hopes that High Point had for itself. So this wasn't was my vision. Depressing or not? Because it's it, no. was, were the answers like and look like they're good? No, they were things like we want to have good expositional preaching where people can hear the word of God. We want to have youth like we want young our young people to be. We want to see young people in the services. We don't want it to be an aging, graying church. Yeah. We um. Like we want to be a missions church. We want to send people to all places in the world to preach Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want to pay off our debt and be financially viable, you know, again, all that kind of thing. Right. So I made a list of seven things about a year and a half ago. I brought it to the elder board and then to the congregation. I said, listen, here are the things you told me seven years ago. They're done. We did them. Hmm. So we we're ready for something new, but yeah. So, oh yeah. Over the course, the church is a little bit more than doubled in size. We were running about a thousand. We were over a thousand. If you count everybody, the way most yeah. churches count, we were probably 12, 1300. Um, and then COVID hit. So I have no idea what we are now. It's just really hard to count. Yeah. So yeah, the church had, you know, between doubled and tripled or whatever in size. And um, that's cool. Um, people have gotten saved. We've baptized people. I, yeah. I think my vision is to be, my vision has always been to be a beacon of what the church should be. I don't yeah. really have this, like, we're going to lead 50,000 people to Jesus. We're going to, take over the textile industry. Like I don't, I mean, I don't have this like big sexy vision. I have, I want to be a city on a hill that can't be hidden. I want to be a church that is so healthy in its culture that does what Jesus says. Like just does that has the guts in a sophisticated city to do what Jesus says yeah, and to be unapologetic about it and to do it in a, a relatively sophisticated way, but in a completely faithful way and to see if God would bless a church that was faithful. Yeah. No gimmicks. Good quality, everything. And so basically my, my vision has always be set a culture of health and truthfulness and faithfulness. Recruit the best people we can. And then lead and love people well and be bold. Um, and I mean, that's all I've tried to do. I, do, I just, I'm not a big vision guy. I don't see right. these big buildings in the future. And yeah. I think there will be stuff in the future like that. But 
that's not like how maybe, maybe like new carpet or something like that <laughs> yeah, new carpet is next year yeah um, thank god yeah <laughs> Um, one quick question that I just thought of, you talked about, you, you say this and I, I was talking to John about it the other day and he was like, yeah, Nick, Nick will say like that you're here until the next person comes like the, a better person comes along, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's what you say and you believe it. So 2030, when I'm, when I'm ready to take your spot, cause I'm clearly the next best person. What, what do you think you're going to do after this? I don't know. I you may be, know? I may just be a pastor in another church. Yeah. I don't think I'm the worst pastor in the country. So yeah. if we can find somebody better for high point, I'll just, I'll move down the ladder one step really, you know, and just do whatever God will have me do. If he finds me useful. I yeah. mean, one of the things I, I think people need to understand is that um, ministry is kind of like war hmm. and it's okay to be exhilarated by the fight, but it's not okay to love war. Yeah. And so I want, like I, I like the, the story of Cincinnati really speaks to me like this guy who was this Roman general and he, but when war was over, he went back to his farm and he was plowing <laughs> and he just wanted peace. And, and Washington was like that too. George Washington um, had read the story of Cincinnati over and over. And he just wanted to go back to Martha's vineyard. Like he like one of those weird movies where a bunch of stuff happens in the middle. And then at the end, the guy just like goes back to home and it's, everything's calm. I like there's movies right. like that all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And like, so I, I want nothing more than to live at peace, Mm -hmm. but I don't think that's going to happen in this life. I think Mm -hmm. I'm always going to be worth the flesh and the devil and the, and, and always have to fight for the truth. And I don't think there's ever been a generation. I mean, we're sojourners on the earth and the best I can hope for is that the world wasn't worthy of me according to, to Hebrews 11. And I have to run a marathon in the arena. Like I'm running after the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus. And yeah. I have to throw off all the sin that tangles and, you know, like I like, that's what I'm called to and I'll do it. And I, I don't, but I don't love the war and I wish I didn't have to fight it. And I wish I didn't have to be the general of this thing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's taxing and tiring and heartbreaking Yeah, to see all, cause I see all the casualties, all the people who are lost, all the people who are broken, all the people who give up and sell their souls for a, for like a pot of stew, like cheaply and yeah. people who are, easily pleased by the counterfeit of the world and all that gross manipulative garbage. And I, and I hate it. I get tired of it. It, it, it traumatizes me. Um, but this work must be done. God's sheep must be fed and they must be protected Mm. and his, his church must be loved. And so I'll do that work till I die. And the sooner, the better, (laughs) you know? Yeah. But St. Chrysostom and on the priesthood once said, it is as much an honor to be deposed if for the right reasons as to be elevated to the bishopric. That is like, if you get kicked out of your church for the right reason, that's just as good as if you huh. get sent to a bigger church. Like you yeah. soldiers have to be faithful. There's, they're just another kind of steward. Yeah. Faithful to the commander, faithful to God. Right. Right. Not, not to the elders or I, yeah. Right. I never, so, yeah. So, I mean, I'm just going to work in God's vineyard and cultivate his plants and grow as much as I can. And that's my goal. And that's my big vision is to do what I'm told. And yeah, improvisationally, I'm going to have a vision because I'm going to say, this is how I think we ought to do it in this time, in this generation. Right. Um, but I always kind of felt like vision stuff can be real gimmicky. Yeah. And I'm, I, yeah. I'm, I'm real, I'm real concerned about that. And I never want yeah. people to feel like I'm just trying to get their money so that I can build this big kingdom. 
Cause I'm not even sure I can run a bigger kingdom. Like what if we built a bigger church? Is that, I don't even Build know if I can run a church that big. Like, <laughs> I, you know what I mean? So I don't know. And it, yeah, and it might not even be good for people. Like, yeah. It, it's, right. it's interesting. That's yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. It, it is corny sometimes the whole vision thing. Cause most people that say they have a vision never achieve it, but yeah. um, yeah. I, yeah. Do you have anything else that you want to add in or say? Yeah. I mean, I, I do. I guess I want to say this. Like I could have told my testimony in a completely different way. Like we could do this podcast like eight times. It would sound like yeah. almost like completely different testimonies because there is no hour long story of a 40 year life. Yeah. There's just no, no such thing. Dude, so, I, you know, this is just one version of that story. So don't think if you heard this, like, you know, my life story because you don't. You just yeah. know, like one. I'm talking to the listener right now. You know, like one little thread that we chose to talk about tonight, you know? Yeah. Dude, I was thinking about that the other day when I shared my testimony. I was like, crap, I left out so many other things yeah. and I'm only 20. So you're, you're way older than me. So there's, there's like, yeah, there's a lot of, there's, you, we've definitely put the emphasis on sexual sin, which you like to do in a lot of things. Just talk about sexual uh, sin, but I think that was good. So um, I just want to, for the record, when I said that I was going to become the pastor, that was a joke. I, del- delivery was a little bit off there, but also maybe hey, it's not I won't, I'm not going to rule that out. I don't rule that no, out. I'm, Listen, I'm not I, ruling it out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really, I mean, I, when I say I'm only doing this till we find somebody better, like I've never been more sincere about anything in my life. Yeah. Like, that's I, John. I love High Point Church. I love the church. I love its people. And I want every kid and person and marriage to thrive. And I right. would never occupy this position if there's somebody could love God's people better than me. Hmm. I mean, the first thing I want to do is just step aside and, and I don't, I don't need the money. I don't need to do this. And like, I don't need all this pressure and responsibility. I would yeah. love to have less pressure and responsibility. Um, I think I'm, yeah. So I, yeah, I just, and I, and I'm, I'm sad. I like, I, I like when people think this is weird, but I'm so sad that there's not a better shepherd for high point church. Like I, I want God's people to have such a better shepherd than me. Yeah, it's so sad to me that I'm their shepherd. But right. as long as I am, I got to do the best I can do. And the and only then, thing to ensure that there will be a better one is if you bring that up. And it's like that. That's like, yeah. that's kind of how the church just seems to work itself out in history. Is like somebody tries to disciple somebody to become the next better version of themselves, and then it keeps working that way. And that's what discipleship is. And I. I I even Jesus was like, you guys will do greater things than I, not, not that we're better than Jesus, but that now we're capable of doing that because of discipleship. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. There's like nine things I could get into from there, but like, you got to stop. We're 20 minutes. Um, yeah. So that's it. Um, thanks for sharing your testimony. We're going to be doing other podcasts coming up soon on some pretty interesting topics. Um, I, I, I'm sure if people, had any questions about your testimony, they could probably reach out to you, right? You don't care. Yes. You're going to get an email back that I'm going to use dictation software. So there's going to be lots of weird typos in it. You just have to sort them out because I don't have time to write everybody a well-edited email. That's all. Just as long as you realize that, go ahead and reach out to me. Yeah. Reach out to him, ask him questions if you want to. Um, I guess that's it for today. Make sure to uh, subscribe and follow. Yeah. And I do want to say this. If you reach out to me, by, especially by email, for in the name of God's mercy, please be succinct in what you write to me. Cause I just, I don't have time to read two pages. Try to do two <laughs> paragraphs. 
almost anything <laughs> can be summarized into that. I, I just, I get so many emails. There's so many people who want my time. I have so many appointments that if you send me a two page email, I'm not going to get back to you for like three months. But if you send me two paragraphs, I'll get back to you in a couple days. You heard it. You heard it here first, folks. Send him the, send him the two paragraphs. <laughs> we will see you guys in the next one. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. All right, bye.